Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the God of all creation, the God who is a God, a relational God, Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've been relational from eternity past and the Holy Trinity, and Lord, you created mankind in your own image and likeness, Lord, and what the entire Bible speaks about are relationships and your personal involvement in human beings. And Lord, we thank you so much for these real-life stories from Scripture, Lord, actual history lessons and things that teach us about you and your, your relationship to mankind. And Lord, even though time changes, cultures change, people don't change, Lord. And so the truth that is relevant then is relevant now. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, the powerful lessons that we have in this life of Joseph. We pray, Lord, that you would open up our spiritual eyes and ears and hearts to be able to receive something you have for us this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we did something new for the first time last week. If you were here over the weekend on Sunday, especially, you know that Danny and I were suddenly called away his um, stepfather passed away, uh, and it was on Thursday, I believe, and they were able to um, arrange a funeral on Sunday, so that was a little tricky trying to find flights to get up there in time, but we were able to take Allegiant up there and drive and get there just 20 minutes before the service started, and he was able to give a eulogy, and then we went to the graveside, and the pastor there asked him to do the graveside, so fortunately, we were able to do that and um, spend a little time with the family and and then we flew out of Charlotte, where my son is, so we got to you know, spend the day with him before we had to come home. So because of that, for the first time ever, as you know, if you were here on Sunday, we took the video from Saturday night and played it on Sunday morning. So I know that was different for a lot of you, but I guess it worked, right? <laughs> so you heard a good part of the story of Joseph, right? I, I kind of kept going back and forth about, all right, you know, he's just done Joseph. And I'm like, but we just finished Joseph too. And you really didn't get to chapter 50. I mean, he, he kind of alluded to it. But it has to be, if you agree with me on this, I think it has to be one of the most intense, emotional, dramatic stories in all of Scripture. And I, I don't think I can even read it without crying at some point. It's that intense. And so tonight, I just kind of want to do a bit of a recap of some of what Danny's already covered, and then kind of take us up to the end of the story. Because there is at least something that we can all relate to in this story. I mean, as Danny brought out, his whole message over the weekend was... Joseph as a type of Christ, you know, lessons from the life of Joseph and, and seeing how in so many ways, as a matter of fact, I went online and I was pulling up because I'm like, surely people have done charts on this, right? Oh my gosh, I had to stop because there, there were so many, but they all include different traits or characteristics or symbolisms between um, the life of Joseph and the life of Christ. And it's so obvious. There's so many overlapping details that it's, it's completely clear that we see in Joseph a type of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to be highlighting some of those things, but I want to go back because we have all had to deal with in some point in our life, we've been dealt a bad hand. 
We've had something done to us. We've had something that someone in some way has wronged us. And it's been deeply painful. And, you know, it's amazing, especially in the family unit, however that came about, you know, in, in whatever way you may have experienced something even in your family where you were wronged, and in this case, innocently wronged, that can stick with you for so many years, decades. And that's what we have in the life of Joseph. So let's go back to where it begins in Genesis chapter 37. Just to kind of, I want to bring it all forward, kind of build this drama from the beginning. So early on, in previous chapters, um, Jacob makes his way up, up, to, up, uh, up to Uncle Laban's house to get a wife, and he ends up with four. And out of those four women come 12 boys. Whew, what a household. And so God had, you know, the promise that God made to Abraham and you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you and your descendants this land forever. That same promise went from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac to Jacob. And God made that promise to Jacob on his way up to Uncle Laban. And then when he got there, he would spend 20 years working for Uncle Laban, seven years for who he thought he was getting the first time, Rachel, pretty Rachel, whom he married. Uh, but at the wedding, Laban made the switch, and he got Leah instead. So he finished out the week with Leah, and he said, you know, it's not our custom to let the uh, younger marry before the older. So, um, you know, it's really curious how that ever happened to begin with, but I guess it was really dark. So they worked. He decided he agreed to work another seven years. But all in all, he was there 20 years working for Uncle Laban before God finally said, it's time for you to go back. I want you to go back, go back to the land of Canaan, go back to Bethel. And then that was quite a journey, and it's difficult to determine even how many years, literally. It could have taken not just a year, possibly, but they were moving slow. They had enormous wealth. He had all kinds of cattle and children and all his possessions. So it's a huge entourage to move from the north all the way down the east side of the Jordan, cross over the Jordan, and finally settle there in the land of Canaan. And so finally he's there. They go, his father Isaac, who lived to be 180 years old, they bury him, and there he's there in the land. So we begin chapter 37. It says Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. So he obeys God. God fulfills his promise to bring him right back to where he had come from. This is the account of Jacob, Joseph, a young man of 17. So he begins now with this next to the youngest son, Joseph, a young man of 17 who was tending the flocks of his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. So as Danny mentioned, these were his um, half-brothers. And these were the handmaidens or the concubines or uh, second and third wife, or no, third and fourth, I guess, <laughs> if you will. One was the handmaiden of Leah, the other was the handmaiden of Rachel. So the brothers they're mentioning here are the half-brothers of not the first and second wife, but the handmaids. So they've been naughty, and Joseph brings a bad report to his father about them. Tells us in verse 3, here's what caused the conflict from the beginning. Here is, you know, the um, situation. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other brothers. 
because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. So I don't know how many of you have siblings. I happen to be the youngest of four. Um, but maybe some of you know what it's like to feel slighted, to feel like mom or dad favors that other one more. Maybe you can relate to that in some capacity. But Joseph had given him this special robe, you know, the coat of many colors, the robe of many colors. However, it was very lovely and ornamented. So when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word for him. So whether Joseph was intentionally, openly, outwardly favoring Joseph more than the brothers, you can only guess that maybe they, they certainly felt that or perceived that. You never give us a nice coat. Um, and then he, you know, tattles on them, so that doesn't endear them to him anymore. So that was the setting when we find out, verse 5, Joseph had a dream. Now that's interesting because if you've read through the story of his father Jacob, when he's fleeing from his brother Esau after he manipulated Esau out of his birthright and blessing, and he's now running away because, you know, Esau wants to kill him, and so they send him off to get him married off, that on the way there, Joseph stops off, or excuse me, Jacob stops off in Bethel, lays his head down, you know, for the night, and he has a dream. And that's when he has that dream, the stairway, the ladder, going to heaven with the angels of God ascending up and down, and then he sees the Lord at the top appear to him. And tell him that I am the God of your father Abraham and Isaac. And God makes him this promise that he's going to bless him. So it's interesting now that this son Joseph also has a dream from the Lord. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. So hate went to deeper hatred. And he said to them, listen to this dream I had. Now, I don't know if he was just a dumb teenager. I don't know if he was feeling a little cocky or if he was really that naive. <laughs> but he's eager to tell his brothers, listen to this dream I had. We were out binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what that means, Right? And his brothers immediately know what it means because they reply, verse 8, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more. Three times hatred now because of his dream and what he had said. Now this is where it kind of moves into the dumb and dumber phase. Because then he had another dream. Now, I bring this up a lot, and I like to point it out when I come across it in Scripture because the Bible always says, and it's a principle from the Old Testament that you see all throughout Scripture, let every matter be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And often when God speaks and when God acts, he gives not one but two and sometimes three witnesses. And so if you're wondering, oh, was that dream from you, Lord? I don't know. Oh, was that just bad pizza? I don't, I don't know if you, that was really a dream from you or not. So God gives you another dream. And so this is what he did for, for Joseph. He gave him a second, little different, but, but similar. Obviously the same meaning. 
He had another dream and told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Well, it's easy to figure out who that would relate to. The sun and the moon, the parents, the 11 stars, his 11 other brothers. Because on that journey, that long journey from um, Syria, where he was, all the way down, in route, on the way, once they got to Bethlehem, before they got further south down to Beersheba, Rachel was pregnant again with little baby Benjamin. It's hard to know the age difference some scholars would guesstimate could have been a 10-year difference. However long it took them to get all the way down, he does have a, a much younger brother now. And so he's, there's 12 of them, so he's talking about the 11 others, right? And when he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And I want you to keep those words in your mind. Bow down to the ground. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. I can't help but think that Joseph was thinking to himself, I had a dream. We'll see. He kept the matter in mind. We'll see what comes of this. So here's where the crisis occurs. Next, his brothers had gone to graze in their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel had said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring back word to me. Then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So they're moving a little further north. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. It's hard to fathom a hatred that's that deep. I mean, really, what had he done? I mean, come on, chalk it up to immaturity. He's a young teenager. He's 17. Okay, maybe he could be a little cocky. I don't know. You know, the pet of the father. Um, obviously favored more than the rest of the brothers, but to kill him, they plotted to kill him. But as we go through this, I want you to be keeping in mind the similarities of the life of Christ. That Christ came into his own, and his own received him not. And not only did they plot to kill him, they did kill him. And so, verse 19, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And of course, you know, it's pack mentality. Once they're together, they could just egg each other on, and then it just gets worse and worse. But Reuben, who's the oldest, heard this and tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Just throw him into the cistern here in the desert and don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Obviously, as the oldest, as the firstborn, he's feeling very sorry, you know, for baby brother and doesn't want any harm to come to him because as the oldest, he's going to feel responsible that I let this happen. So he's trying to come up with a way that he can sneak around and rescue him. 
Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. As Danny described, you know, a cistern was sometimes a, a hollowed out cave or an area that they dug way down that could hold water. And it was very deep and often had steps. We've seen them in Israel, very, very large and deep. So they just threw him in. And as they sat down to eat their meal, now it's interesting that the New Testament talks about, and in Psalms, you know, his cries for help, which, which were probably just echoing off the wall, well, get me out of here. And, you know, they're just ignoring him. And they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, um, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah, okay, he's the fourth child, fourth born, comes up with a different idea. Maybe he's uh, thinking more in terms of, you know, something profitable, not just taking his life. What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hand on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So at least he's trying to reason with his brothers and come on, we can at least get something out of him money-wise. So his brothers agreed. And when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now, 20 shekels would have been just typical price of a slave. So I figured, you know, Reuben's obviously not there. We find out in a few minutes, and there's only 10 of them left. So I guess they each get two shekels each. Whew, what a bargain. So when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes and he went to his brothers and said, The boy isn't here. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it and see if it's your son's robe. (laughs) Not our brother's, but your son's. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him, and Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile... Also, as the Bible tells us in other places, that he was shackled in chains, iron chains around his neck and around his legs and arms. So can you imagine in the heat of the desert, poor Joseph being drug away mile after mile after mile on foot through blistering desert all the way down to Egypt, wondering what in the world he had done to deserve this. Wondering if those dreams really were from God. What have I done that my brothers hate me this much? And so here he is, really suffering cruelly, quite innocently, at the hands of his ten other brothers. So, we flip over to chapter 39. Joseph winds up there. In Egypt, it turns out he has purchased by a very prominent official, Potiphar, and he's taken to um, 
who happens to be one of Pharaoh's officials, who bought him, <laughs> so he sold for a second time. But interesting, chapter 39, verse 2, and this is what we read several times about Joseph. And it seems to be the five-letter mark of a man of God. It says, the Lord was with him. And that is what made all the difference in the world and the life of Abraham and every other man and woman of God that he chose and had a plan and a purpose for. That although he may have felt completely alone and rejected and isolated and now in a foreign land where he doesn't even know the language, sold as a slave, but it says the Lord was with him. He may not have known it. He certainly didn't feel like it, but God was, and he prospered. And so even though he was sold into slavery, he was sold into a, a nice home, a prominent home, a place where God was going to build and mold and shape this man and give him the leadership skills and the training he would need for the future. So this was his boot camp, you might say. But it says that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in the eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of the household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. And from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. And here we go again. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. And with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. So obviously Joseph is though a young man, a man of character, and obviously a hard worker. And even though he's in this situation, there's nothing that indicates that he's just sulking or having a pity party. He has a job. I guess he assumes he's going to make the most of it. He's going to trust God for whatever this all means. And the Lord was with him, and it says everything he put his hand to. So, you know, I can't try to think through the chronology of this, and it's not clear because it doesn't tell us how long he served in Potiphar's house, but it had to be for some time, I would think, because if it had to do with the fields and the crops, well, there's planting and harvesting and planting and harvesting, so that had to take some time. Uh, and whatever else he was put in charge of, that it was quick, he was quick to notice, but soon he proved himself as a capable leader and manager and worker and so, and so responsible and dependable. These are the kind of employees you want, right? <laughs> These are the kind of children you try to raise. Um, and evidently, uh, Jacob had done a good job here. And then it just gives this, this little sidebar that uh, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And I can't help but think, because, you know, you've seen boys as they grow into young men, especially if they do any type of physical labor, how much they fill out. And I think that probably added to his handsomeness and becoming more well-built the more he had to work in Potiphar's household. And so, as you know, the rest of the story here, he quickly, and being a handsome young man, especially a foreigner, there's always this intrigue with foreign young men, right? You know, a different accent, and especially if he's so handsome that he quickly caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. 
And the story goes on that she's trying to entrap him day after day after day, but he simply refuses to be in the house or even near her until the one fateful day that, you know, she probably maneuvers and manipulates things so that she can be in the house alone, sends all the servants out, so the two of them there. And she's pleading with him to come to bed with her, but he ran, leaving, and she grasped his cloak and left with, for probably very little on. And so she has some type of evidence with which to accuse him, and so that's exactly what she does. This Hebrew slave that you brought in has tried to make fun of me. You know, as soon as I came, I screamed for help, but he left. So she, here we go, a false accusation. So here we go again. Things for Joseph, they, they kind of got a little better, and then wham. Things go from bad to worse. Because when the master heard the story that the wife told, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. So he evidently believed her, or, or, in order to save face, he could disagree with his wife, so he had to do something. He couldn't keep him with that kind of accusation. So, Verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Put him in prison. But it wasn't just any old prison. It wasn't just like the commoner's prison. He kind of got in the deluxe prison, if you will. I'm sure a dungeon's a dungeon, but I guess some are worse than others. But he, notice it says, he was taken to where the king's prisoners were confined. The king's prisoners. But... Circle that. While Joseph was there in prison, here we read it again, the Lord was with him. So he went from one bad situation to another bad situation. Now he's falsely accused. He's done nothing but exemplary behavior, exemplary service, outstanding service to his master, even resisted the woman over and over and over again, and then gets falsely accused. And now he's put in jail. But the Lord in his mysterious ways, said Isaiah talks about the mysterious ways of the Lord, you know, how he trains us and prepares us for his service. And uh, in Joseph's case, and, and, and most of the men and women of Scripture, it's a long time because he, there was such a high calling God had to prepare him for, just like he would do for Moses later on. And so it says, that while he was there, the Lord was with him, verse 21, and showed favor, he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put him in charge of all who, of those held in the prison. So maybe he knew something about Joseph, maybe he was aware or there was already a reputation about his abilities in Potiphar's household. So he's like, oh, I've got a good leader here. I've got a good manager. I'll put him in charge of the prisoners. <laughs> kind of relieves the warden of some duties, right? I'll put him in charge. But again, like, like Daniel, he, he gained favor and kindness from this warden. So verse 21, the, here we go again. Just like Potiphar, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now, you know that old saying, the Lord helps those who help themselves. 
God favors those who favor him. And I don't think this was just some exceptional favor God was bestowing on Joseph, unmerited or unearned. I think because Joseph had been so faithful in such adverse, unfair circumstances, he persevered, he was faithful to his task, whatever was set before him, he did it and he did it well. And I think God blessed him because of that. And because he proved himself so capable and so faithful that now God is giving him a step up and giving him more responsibility, even though it's in a prison. And so in chapter 40, we have this whole story that now enter two prisoners. Another interesting parallel to the life of Christ, because in a sense, you think Christ was taken as a prisoner, just like Joseph. Christ had to suffer and be accused and, and um, suffer consequences with two other prisoners. And here we have Joseph with two prisoners. And so, you know, you see the, the kindness and the concern. You see much more of Joseph's character in this chapter because, you know, he's beginning to take care of the butler and the baker of Pharaoh. In verse 6, when Joseph came to them the next morning he saw that they were dejected. So he asked his officials who were in custody with him, why are your faces so sad today? Like, why should he care? (laughs) They're prisoners. But it just goes to show you again that just like Christ was always moved to compassion when he saw those who were suffering or those who were in need or those who were downcast, that he was always concerned. So this is what we see in the life of Christ, that he looks on these two downcast, sorrowful um, prisoners and wants to know why they're sad. So they each tell their dream, and as you know, the dreams are, um, just as he interprets, they're fulfilled exactly the same. The butler is restored to his position, and the baker is executed just like Joseph had interpreted. But when the butler was released to go back, remember what Joseph said to him. Um, What verse is that? Verse 14. When all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness and mention me to Pharaoh. Like, help get me out of here. See what he says? Get me out of this prison, for I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being in a dungeon. Verse 23, the cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Verse 4, chapter 41, and when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Two full years. So we're going to find out soon how old Joseph is when he's released. He's 30. When he left, he was 17. So do the quick math. How many years have passed? 13. 13 long years. So I was trying to think, because it doesn't specifically tell us, half of those years in the service of Potiphar, more or less, or the other half of those years in prison, more or less. Whichever way, it's a long time. 13 long years. And then after, you know, the butler's restored, it's, you know, two more years and he's still in that prison. 
It's kind of like when you go through that desert time in your life, <laughs> that part where you just don't understand why things aren't happening, why things seem to be stalled at a standstill. You're not moving forward. You can't really hear from God. You don't know what's going on. Joseph is such an inspiration to us for us to just keep on waiting, keep on trusting. Because in the fullness of time, of course, Pharaoh would have a dream. And he tells his dream, and he tells it to the wise men. And, of course, they don't know how to interpret it. But when he wakes up, his mind's troubled. And then, ding, 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 a light goes off in the cupbearer's head. The cupbearer said to Joseph, Today I'm reminded of my short, or excuse me, to Pharaoh, Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. And he goes on to mention that once, you know, back when you put me in prison, there was this Hebrew slave who interpreted the dreams, and they came out just like he said. So they send for Joseph. And can you imagine, can you imagine being Joseph now? And the guard comes to say, it's time to clean you up. Pharaoh wants to see you. Now, was there a ray of hope? Is he thinking, finally, I'm getting out of here? Or is he thinking, now what have I done? I mean, just the anxiety and the anticipation of what can possibly happen next because it just seems to be like every time he's starting to make some progress, boom, he just gets smacked down again. But not this time because it says, verse 14, so Pharaoh sent for Joseph and was, he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said that you can, and when you, hear, and when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And I love the humility of Joseph here. He could have easily said, well, as a matter of fact, I can. Shoot. You know? But he very humbly says, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. That's the kind of faith and trust he has in the Lord. He knows that the only way he can give an interpretation is if God gives it to him. And those interpretations come from the Lord. So Pharaoh shares the dream and explains this dream that he has about the seven, you know, uh, big good cows and the scrawny cows and then the seven heads of grain, the good grain, and then the scrawny grain that ate up the good grain. And then verse 25, after Joseph listens very carefully, he says to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. So notice it's two dreams. God's reaffirming what he's planning to do, and he's letting Pharaoh know. And Joseph says, explains the seven cows are seven years, and when the seven good heads of grain are seven years, it's one of the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up after this are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They're seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. And he goes on to explain, seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows will be so severe. And here's that testimony of two or three witnesses. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh, verse 32, in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God. And God will do it very soon. So let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land. And let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land and so forth. And he's, telling, he's given him the whole plan. Here's what I think you ought to do. 
you know, store up the grain during the seven good years so that during the seven severe years you've got plenty and you, you know, you can survive through the famine. Verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And in that very moment, if you're Joseph, can you even imagine? Is this what I think it is? Did I hear you correctly? You want me to be second in charge? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. (laughs) And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater in you. Is it even possible that as he's standing there listening to this declaration from Pharaoh that suddenly his dreams begin to make sense to him. Like you've literally gone from prison to the palace to the prime minister. Just like that. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger and he dressed him in robes of fine linen and had him ride in a chariot as his second in command and men shouted, Make way, thus he'll put in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all Egypt. Then he gives him a wife. And it tells us that Joseph, verse 46, was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. So look, think back. In order for God to prepare him for such a position of responsibility and leadership, he knew he had to train him. And so that's what he did for those 13 long years. Put him through a a divine Bible boot camp, as it were, to get him ready. So in being faithful in a few things along the way, and he graduated to more and more and more responsibility and proved himself faithful each and every time. So it behooves us, as my mother used to say, (laughs) to consider when we're going through a rough stage or Uh, whether it's a work or relationship or that hard time that we seem to be struggling, struggling, struggling through, you got to consider, you know, this is God's training ground. God is building your spiritual muscle. There's no waste in God's economy. And so all these experiences of your life, you know, it's the Romans 8.28, God works all things together for the good, for the good. It may not be good while you're going through it, but he's working it together for the good. And so suddenly now, 30 years old, 13 long years of affliction and hardship and heartache, being treated so unfairly, having to suffer through year after year after year, until just like that, when the time had come, God immediately exalts him to this place of prominence, second in command. And it goes on to say that, you know, during those first five, seven years of, of, of plenty, you know, he set about to store up food. During that time, God grants him two sons, um, Manasseh and Ephraim. But then the seven years of famine set in. And this is where the plot thickens. 
because, you know, it's been a long time. And notice it, what he says about his firstborn, verse 51. He named him Manasseh because he said, God has made me forget all my troubles in my father's household. Well, <laughs> not entirely. <laughs> or you wouldn't have named him that, huh? <laughs> God's made me forget all my trouble and my father's house. And then he named his second son Ephraim, saying, it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Sometimes God allows that suffering in our life to bring about fruitfulness. And so he's put in charge, and, when, and once the famine began, Pharaoh issues the command, go to Joseph. And we see again this picture of Christ, like this Savior who steps forward, literally, to help save all those who are suffering so that they won't die. He's providing for them, just like the Savior provides for us. So verse 57 says, All the countries came to Egypt to buy the grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Remember Danny said, in all the world, everyone came to Joseph. So what a picture of Christ as the Savior of the world. He's the bread of life. And Joseph was there to dispense the bread of life to everyone in need. What a beautiful picture. So of course, this famine Fred, the the famine spreads and this moves up into Canaan. So when Jacob learned there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? <laughs> I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we can live and not die. So they do. They saddle up. They head on down there. Verse 6 says, now Joseph was the governor of the land the one who sold grain to all the people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, notice the first thing they did. They bowed down to him. Ain't that something? Joseph's dream is coming true. His brothers bowed down to him. Notice, not just a bow, but with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And, of course, we found out later he's speaking through an interpreter. So like Danny joked, you know, by this time he, you know, looks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. Um, I mean, you know what they look like. We've seen all the pictures, right? Uh, everything on all the temples and all that, you know, the way that they dressed. You know, they wore the wigs. They wore the eyeliner. You know, all the time he's crying. I'm thinking, is the eyeliner just running down his face? <laughs> um, so he must look completely unrecognizable to them. But, oh, boy, when he hears that Hebrew tongue, he knows immediately. And he knows who they are. They haven't changed all that much. So think of, let's keep, keep the, um, the math going. 13 plus 7, it's been 7 years of famine. So now 37, we find out soon that it's been 2 years now into the famine. So he's now 39. So it's been 22 years since he's laid eyes on his brothers. That is such a long time. But as soon as he saw them, he recognized them and spoke harshly. In verse 8, although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And then he remembered his dreams about them. 
I can't even imagine. There they are, all ten of them, standing there right before him. And it's amazing that he could even keep his composure. But it's a test, and I know he wants to test them to see, are they still the same as they were before? You're spies. You've come here to the land that's unprotected. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, you've come to see that our land is unprotected. So they go on to explain, no, there were 12 brothers, the son of one man who lives in the land of Canaan, and the youngest is now with their father, and one is no more. What self-control he had not to reveal himself on the spot, not to send him to the gallows right then and there, but such poise, such self-control. Joseph says, it's just as I told you, you're spies, and this is how you'll be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you'll not leave this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother, and the rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you're spies, and he'll put... So he put them all in custody for three days. So that was pretty fun, I think. He, they deserve that. Just a little taste of what prison was like. Just a little taste. But look how gracious. It was only three days. I mean, come on, he could have left them in there for three weeks, three months, three years for that matter. But he was kind. He only gave them three days. So on the third day... He brings them out, tells them if they're honest men, you know, but you need to go and bring your brother back basically to prove who you are. Now, once he tells them that, then they start talking to each other in Hebrew. And Reuben, the oldest, replies, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? Oh, excuse me, back up verse 21. They said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen, and that's why this distress has come upon us. You know, they knew. They knew. Be sure your sin will find you out. They knew that they somehow, it was all tied back. They were being called to account for how they had mistreated their brother. And Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. But they did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. And he turned away from them and began to weep. I wonder, how did this happen? How, you know, it's not just he shed a few tears. He wept. That's why I'm like, what happened to the eyeliner? I don't know. But he turns away and somehow robe, tissue, I don't know what he had to finally gain his composure to turn back around and then give the order to refill all, you know, fill their sacks with silver, put the money back in, let them go, send them off, and then send the servants after him, you know, not this time, that's the next time. Anyway, when they make it back, all the way back home, they're astonished to open their sacks and find out that the money's there. And they're thinking, what in the world is happening to us? And their father, Jacob, verse 36, said, you've deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin and everything is against me because he took, interesting that they put, he put Simeon in jail. I think because he heard Reuben speaking up 
and he knew that Reuben was not part of throwing him in, and Reuben had tried to rescue him. So you go to the next oldest son, Simeon. And we'll find out a little bit about Simeon's character later, and could be another reason for putting Simeon in, but they left Simeon in jail. So Reuben tells his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I don't bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Joseph said, my son, he's talking about Benjamin, will not go down with you. His brother's dead, and he's the only one left. And if harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, you'll bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. (laughs) And I wonder, did they have any compulsion at all by this time? I mean, all these years have passed. They've been able to try to forget about it, not think about it. You know, he hasn't brought it up too much. But now that they're demanding, this ruler is demanding that Benjamin come, It's bringing it all back. Joseph is no more. And if you take this one, now they've got Simeon. So it goes on to say that the famine was still severe in the land. So when they'd eaten all the grain they'd brought, their father said, go down and buy us a little more food. And then Judah steps in and explains again, you know what he told us. We can't go back unless we take Benjamin, explains the whole thing to him again. Why did you tell him? How are we to know? He specifically asked us questions. So finally he agrees. It, their life depends on it. You know, he sends all these gifts. Verse 13, he finally agrees. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me... If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. So poor old Jacob, you know, your heart's got to go out to him. But he's, he's kind of, um, you know, he was such a manipulator in his early life. <laughs> you know, you can be forgiven, but sometimes you've got to suffer the consequences. And what goes around comes around. And um, perhaps he's feeling some of the consequences of his own deceitfulness way back in the day. So they go down, they bring they not only bring back the gifts, but they bring back double the money. They, they brought back the money that had been put, that they brought the first time, and extra money to buy more grain. And so when they went, verse 19, it says, when they went to Joseph's steward and said, look, here's the money. It was in our sack. We're bringing it back. He's like, don't worry. It's all right. Don't be afraid. The God of your fathers has received the treasure in your sack. I did receive, gave you that treasure. I received your money. So he takes them into Joseph's house, gives them water to wash their feet, takes care of their animals, their pack animals. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought down, brought into the house. And what did they do? (laughs) For the second time now, they bowed down before him to the ground. Second time now. He asked them how they were doing, and then he said, how was your father you told me about. Is he still living? This is the number one concern he has. How is Jacob? Is Jacob still alive? Is Jacob doing well? His father. He replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And once again, they bowed low to pay him honor. And I wonder if in his mind he's hearing them say, will we really bow down to you? (laughs) Do you really intend to rule over us? And I'm sure he's just there and thinking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then as he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, now remember, not certain what the age difference is 
you know, maybe seven to ten year age difference, not sure, but he's a much younger brother. And these are the only two blood brothers. Their mother was Rachel, who died giving birth to Benjamin. And he says, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. And deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. And he went into his private room and wept there. Our Joseph is a big-time crybaby, isn't he? But, but this has, I mean, this goes to show you the depth of hurt and the depth of emotion that he has carried with him all these years, all these decades. And now to actually not only see his, all his brothers, but his brother Benjamin. And by the way, as I was rereading through this, I thought to myself, you know, I wonder, did Benjamin at this point even know? Was he even aware of what had taken place? Because he was a little thing. He wasn't out taking care of the sheep. He was young when all this happened. You know, they brought back the bloodied coat. Did they ever? I suspect this is the blood brother. They would rather die than ever let on to little Benjamin in any way. So my personal opinion is that Benjamin didn't even know what had happened. But he, that's just my thought. But he can't contain himself, so he has to actually leave the room so he can go weep. Then after he washed his face, he came back in and had them serve the food. And he served them by themselves because, you know, Egyptians and Hebrews can't eat together. And then verse 33, the men had been seated before him in order of their ages from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. Like, when are they going to catch on? <laughs> like, who told him that this was our birth order? And when Joseph's, when portions were served to them from Joseph's tables, Benjamin's portions was five times as much as anyone else's. Five times as much. Something ought to be, the wheels ought to be turning by now. But instead they feasted and drank freely with him. So then next Joseph decides another test. He's going to give them instructions. He gave his officials the word to take his silver, special silver cup and put it in Benjamin's sack and send them on their way. And then as soon as they had gone a short distance, then he sends the official to ask, what is this you've done? Which one of you have stolen my Lord's cup? And you know, none of us, why would we do such a thing? We brought you money. Why would we steal anything? And they go through all, starting with the oldest, they go through all the sacks till they get to Benjamin's. Well, you can imagine the horror that probably came over, especially Reuben and Judah, knowing what had happened. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Now they're talking to each other <laughs> and to this official. So Judah goes up, pleads with him. They end up going all the way back. They're brought before Joseph one more time. And Judah now steps up to the plate and, and comes before them and pleads with Joseph, retells the whole story. He's an, my father's aged. His older son is gone no more. Now the younger, his life is tied up with the boy. If anything should happen, you know, I, we can't bring our father down to the grave in grief. And so at this point, Joseph cannot contain himself any longer. And so before all his attendants, he cried, have everyone leave my presence. 
So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. So chapter 45, verse 2. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Have you ever heard anyone weep that loudly that the whole house could hear? I'll never forget reading a book one time by Philip Yancey. I think the name of it was um, why, uh, it's about grace. Why, not why grace changed. Anyway, he was talking about this part of the story of Joseph. And he said, that was the sound of forgiveness. It was the sound of forgiveness. All those years, all that hurt all that anguish, all his suffering, all the wrongdoing, it all just came gushing out in that one moment. And they were horrified. I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him. They were terrified at his presence. And he said, come close. I'm your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. And then the most remarkable thing, don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years, there's been a famine in the land and for the next five years, there'll be plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you by a remnant on earth. Notice, God sent me here to save your life, basically, to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me, but God. And he made me father to Pharaoh and lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him. This is what Joseph, your son Joseph says, God has made me lord of Egypt. Come down to me and don't delay. And he goes on to say, I will provide for you. And he tells them to rush home. And once again, he throws his arms and weeps over Benjamin, and then he draws them all near and hugs all of them and talks with all of them. And then he loads them up entirely with everything they'll need, sends them home to bring their father back. And when they tell Joseph or Jacob what's happened, he's so astonished he can't believe it. But when he sees all the provisions, it says in verse 27, the spirit of their father revived, and he said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I'll go to see him before I die. So they pack up the entire family. They head home. As they finally, the whole entourage draws near, they send Judah to find the place to meet. Joseph, I can't imagine this, this finally, this reunion of Joseph and his father, where it says that he falls on Jacob's neck, and they wept, both of them, for a long time. And then, of course, Joseph provides the very best for them. He gives them the best of the land, the best provisions. Jacob ends up living 17 long years in the land of Egypt. And then just before he dies, he blesses all of the sons. And then he dies, and they make the long journey to bury him back in Canaan. And finally, in chapter 50, thinking now, dad is dead more years have passed, you know, another five years. Actually, five and 17 is 22. 
So another 22 years have passed. <laughs> and there they are in Egypt and now still overcome with this guilt. And so it finally concludes here. Chapter 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did for him? So they sent word to Jacob saying, Joseph saying, your father left these instructions saying, this is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they've committed in treating you so badly. Please forgive the sins of the servants of God, your fa of the God, your father. When their message came to Joseph, he wept. He wept again. They still don't get it. They still don't believe me. They still think that I'm going to take revenge on them. His brothers came and once more threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves. But Joseph said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. What a story. What a picture of Christ. Such humility, such grace, such unending love that he can forgive and forgive and keep on forgiving. So... This speaks volumes to me, I hope it does to you, that there's no sin that we can't forgive. We've been forgiven all of our sins by God, and he's asking us to forgive others just as Joseph did. So Father, we pray that you would grant us that heart, Lord, that perfect divine love that expects nothing in return, a love that's never insulted, a love that gives and gives and keeps on giving, knowing, Lord, that you make up the difference. So, Father, if there's any struggling here tonight with forgiveness, I pray that you would grant them forgiveness in their hearts, just as Joseph forgave his brothers. Lord, that we can be set free and love freely as you have loved us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll hope